Well, if I say Philadelphia, you think Liberty Bell, Rocky Balboa, and a great cheesesteak cheese sandwich, which I don't think I've ever had a cheesesteak sandwich, actually. I know, I'll survive. Well, I might not if I eat the cheesesteak sandwich. But we are on a journey through western Turkey. We started in Ephesus, and we moved up to the north to Smyrna, and then making a big circle around Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. This morning, we're down in Philadelphia, about 30 miles south and east of Sardis, and about 100 miles inland from Smyrna. And so, this morning, when we come there, there's no Liberty Bell in that Philadelphia. It's a city in the Hermas River Valley. It's about 30 miles south and east of Sardis. It's, it's in this valley that's in the junction, really, of, of a lot of roads that head to the east of Turkey. And so it gained the title Gateway to the East. It is the second church that has no condemnation given to it. So it might be a good time for us to ask this question. What kind of church does Jesus prefer? Hmm, he kind of likes this one. So it must have been Baptist. <laughs> or maybe it was Presbyterian or Catholic or Methodist or Lutheran, Episcopal. Or ask it another way, was it rural? Was it urban? Was it a multi-site church? Maybe it was a mega church. Maybe it was a church plant or a house church or a new church or an old church. Maybe Jesus prefers large buildings. Maybe he prefers small buildings. Maybe he really likes shanties or storefronts or apartments or cathedrals. Well, as we've walked through these seven churches, we don't have to speculate on an answer to what he likes, do we? He tells us what kind of church he prefers, and it has nothing to do with anything I've listed already. When Jesus looks at his churches, he's not looking at outward things. He's looking at their DNA. What makes them tick? He's looking for signs of a growing faith and growing love and growing hope. Of the seven churches, only Smyrna and Philadelphia received no words of condemnation. And it's no coincidence that those are the two churches who faced the greatest amount of suffering and difficulty in their situation. Generally, hard times make for a strong church, especially if the hard times are, are, are because the church refuses to compromise with the gospel. Revelation 3, verse 7 is where we start this morning. It records the letter to the church at Philadelphia. It's a city founded in the middle of the second century B.C. The founder was rumored to have died in Greece, so his younger brother took the throne. When the rumor proved to be false, the younger brother said, okay, bro, come on back, you can be king. Hence, the city of brotherly love. Not many brothers would do that. Jesus seems to refer to at least three touch points to the culture. So let's look at those touch points to the culture first so that when we come to them in the text, they'll make some sense. There's a good connection, there's a bad connection, and then there is an interesting connection. So first, the first connection is geography. Okay? It's built on this narrow pass between two mountain ranges. 
It stood literally as the doorway to the rest of Asia Minor. And the regions of Mycenae and Lydia and Phrygia, they all met. Oh, there's another map. Maybe we already passed it that has those names on it. There it is. Mycenae and Lydia and Phrygia, they all kind of meet right at Philadelphia. And so what, what the Greeks wanted to do was take their superior Greek culture and get it to the barbarians on the uh, eastern side of Turkey. All right? And so it became really a church that had a missionary purpose. Excuse me. It was a city that had a missionary purpose. Guess what the church is going to have? But now I've given it away. Goods from the port of Smyrna, as well as the Greek culture, were very easily taken up the road to Philadelphia and then to parts east. The geography is a good thing for this city. Second thing is a bad thing. They had a lot of earthquakes. It was a city that, that was always beset because of its geographical situation. In 17 AD, okay, Jesus is alive, um, the worst of the earthquakes hit. It destroyed 12 cities in the region, including Sardis and Philadelphia. And the aftershock scared the people so much that most of them moved out into the countryside. They became suburbanites. Then the third connection is, is rather interesting. We're not sure about this, but it sounds reasonable. It might be a connection that Jesus will make later in the text to a habit that these local people had in Philadelphia, which was to put up local memorial um, columns for people who had been influential in their city. When the people came to the temple then to worship, they would see these pillars of people who'd made a significant contribution to the life of the community, and they would remember those who served them faithfully. So this city of brotherly love is intended as it was founded to be a missionary city, to introduce Greek culture to the world. The church in that city is the youngest and probably the smallest of the seven churches that get a letter in Turkey. And though it was small in size, Jesus had opened up ministry opportunities beyond their means for these faithful believers. So here's a church of which Christ heartily approves. So how do we measure up to a church that God highly approves? How can we become like this small church in Philadelphia? Let's read the letter. And then we're going to dig down into four things I think we should consider about our church if we want to measure up to this wonderful little church. If you have your Bibles, we're in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. In other words, he, uh, that's a reference to Isaiah 22 where the, the gatekeeper can open everything up in the temple. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. And I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, 
that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So how can we be like this great little church? I think there are four things for us to consider this morning. Number one, consider our opportunity. I mean, do we really take chances? Consider the opportunity that's before us. Verse 7 and 8. These are the words of him who is holy and true, description of Christ, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Oh, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Two observations about opportunities in this text. First, Jesus himself opens the door. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. When God opens a door, when there's an opportunity for ministry in front of you, who has opened the door? Jesus. And nobody can shut it. And sometimes people will ask, well, how do I know whether Jesus, God, opened this door or not? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question, but the simple, the simple answer is you really don't know till you go through the door. You got to walk. If it closes and you hit your nose, you hit your nose. Sometimes we need a little shove. Sometimes it's very obvious. It was the spring of 2007. We were gathered right here, and Don and Elaine Hur came, and they shared with us about an opportunity to, to serve a church in Uganda. And so we put together. We, it was a door. It was open. So we put together a team. It was a very difficult trip. At least it was for me. And I don't think we accomplished a whole lot in the big, broad scheme of things. But as we went through the open door, we found another open door. And a year later, we were back doing a medical mission, and that one was really hard. But we did that 13 times. It's a good thing we don't know the future, because we wouldn't be able to handle it if we did. Because the future is full of ups and downs and twists and turns. You just got to walk through the next door that's open. Because with all the unexpected things that we don't see coming, it would be too overwhelming if we knew about them ahead of time. And most of us would probably run the other way. God rarely shows us the big picture in advance. If the door's a little ajar, push it open and see if that's where he's leading. We still have to summon the courage to go through the door if we're going to see what's on the other side. And to be honest, I think we're standing before at least one more open door right now. We've got to push it open and see what's on the inside. I'm not really supposed to talk about it publicly, but you know me. <laughs> Hopefully, we've got a, a team of people exploring the possibility of us helping face-to-face some of the 10 to 12,000 Afghan refugees that they're dumping in Southern California in the next 16 months. I made the timeline up. <laughs> 
next year or so? What can we do? How would you do if you were an Afghan refugee? You've been in Afghanistan, and all of a sudden you show up in Southern California. Oh, my gosh. You go to Costco. Oh, <laughs> I don't go to Costco. Can you imagine what life is like for them? How can we step in and care for, for, the, for those who are new? But right now, we're just exploring options. We're exploring commitments, interests, seeing what it's going to take. Because the one who is holy and true, the one who has all authority, he opens doors for people. Could be one of them. It's his job to open the door. And he's very good at it. And he doesn't need our help. Our job is to go through the door one step at a time, one foot in front of another, and see where it leads. One door may close, and that's perfectly fine. Another door may open. That's okay, too. We may have to sit for a while waiting for some door to open, and that's okay, too. Jesus is sovereign over the doors of life. We can trust him. And sometimes we don't know how we fit in. And sometimes somebody will make some comment, and we're just like, oh, I'm too discouraged now. But sometimes doors close. So we bow before the Lord, who opens and no man shuts, and who shuts and no man opens. Second observation about opportunities, Jesus honors faith, not strength. Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, I know that you have little strength yet. See, little strength and great opportunity, sometimes they go together really well. And sometimes small churches think they're, 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 there is little that they can do for Christ. But it's all a matter of perspective. The church of Philadelphia had a little strength. They seemed to think they were a small church. Maybe they didn't have a lot of wealth or wise people or educated people. But you know what? Even if you aren't one of those, you can trust Jesus just as much as anybody else. What is it that God honors? It's not the strength. It is faith. What's he looking for? Faith. What does he reward? Faith. And how much faith you need to have? Well, Jesus said it's about as big as a mustard seed. Or the faith of a child, just trusting. And notice the two wonderful things Jesus says about this church. You kept my word, and you have not denied my name. The first involves holding fast to the words of Jesus. And the second means you aren't embarrassed by the first. We can do that. We can hold fast to the words of Jesus. And we cannot be embarrassed by him. We could follow Jesus and keep that to ourselves, which would be very sad. When Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, in Acts 17, their opponents tried to have them arrested. And I love how the New King James puts it, you know. What's the charge against them? Well, these are who have turned the world upside down, and they've come to us too. Well, there's a tragedy. There's a crime. How's that for an insult? They've turned the world upside down. Would anybody say that about us? You see, they meant it as an accusation, as an insult. 
but it was actually a compliment. What a great thing to have been said about you. You've turned the world upside down for the Savior. You keep his word, and you do not deny his name, and you will turn the world upside down. If we're going to be a church like the one in Philadelphia, you've got to look at your opportunities. Second thing I think this text tells us, though, is we have to consider our opposition. Do we stand firm? You know, the first thing is you look for, for opportunities, and you want to reach the community. But then you really have to evaluate, okay, let's get the big picture. We're going to get opposition. What does that mean? What does that look like? Because the gospel's good news, but before it's good news, it's what? It's pretty bad news. In one of his books, Francis Schaeffer says that he were riding a train, and he only had an hour to share the gospel. He'd spend the first 45 minutes on sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the last 15 minutes on the gospel itself. I think the believers at Philadelphia would appreciate that. They cared enough about the truth that they made some powerful enemies in the community. See, having opposition meant they were faithful to Christ. And to thrive among opposition, you have to take this opposition and put it in a larger context. Listen to what Jesus says about their opposition that they faced. He says, first, we will be vindicated. Verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not. They're not fully Jews. They're just, you know, they're liars. That's rather harsh. I will make them come out. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. These Jews in Philadelphia were persecuting the church. And seeing Jesus as a threat to their way of life, they went ahead and said, you know, you guys got to go too. Forget it. And you're a liar. Jesus says they're liars, which is rather striking. And yet there's coming a day when our enemies will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore... We don't have to be intimidated by people who have no use for Christianity today. Not only are they wrong in their current conclusions about the Savior, but that's not going to be their final answer. Philippians 2 pictures a day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it willingly today. Everybody will do it someday. That will be their final answer. Football coaches tell their players, play as hard as you can, and when the game is over, look up at the scoreboard and then see who's ahead. It's kind of what Jesus is telling this church here, except he's saying this, play hard, even when you think you're behind, because when the game is over, you're going to be on the winning team. That's our perspective. We will be vindicated. Second thing about this is we will be protected. Verse 10, here we go. Woohoo! Since you have kept my command to endure patiently... I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. There's a lot of interpretation issues with this verse. But if you actually just read the words, it's very clear. And it is pretty good news for the church. When they faced opposition, they were going to have a great promise. 
And sometimes the best thing you can do is just endure patiently. Hold on tight. Because the Christian life means not giving up when you feel like throwing in the towel. And in one sense of, the, of this text, it's very clear. They've been obedient, so they're going to get this, this reward. On the other hand, it's a very tough passage because there are several elements that are difficult to interpret. So let's walk through them, shall we? We're going to do some... We're going to do it. Let's look at these phrases. It says, you, will, you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from what? The hour of testing. What seems to be in mind is that whole great tribulation that starts in, in its description in Revelation 4 and goes clear through Revelation 18. It's that time of sorrow or distress, the 70th week of Daniel in Daniel 9. Seems to be the coming wrath of 1 Thessalonians 1. But here it's what? It's short time. It's only an hour. You can put up with anything for almost an hour. And he says, to test those who live on the earth. Who's getting tested? Well, that expression is used 10 times in the book of Revelation. And it always, on every time it's used, it's always used to, those, to describe those who do not want to believe in God. They're not believing in the Lamb, and they decided to worship the beast. It's a key expression for the unrepentant of the earth. These are unbelievers those whose hearts are hard. That's what this, this hour of testing is coming to test them. And then he says that it's going to come upon the whole world. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, the whole world, you do the study in the New Testament. What does that mean? It can refer to just the Roman world, the known Roman world, or it can refer to the whole world, world, everything, the physical world. And you can find this expression used either way in the New Testament. Either it's just the Roman Empire, then what is he saying? If it's just the Roman Empire, then he is saying that this is some, this is some kind of persecution that's going to reach to the entire Roman Empire. I'm going to keep you safe. If it refers to the whole earth, then it seems like it's this big time of persecution that he describes in other places. And then he says, keep you from. Now, this could, could mean protect you during. Or the literal translation is keep out of. I will keep you out of this coming trouble. So, what's he saying? You have four options. I'm going to give you all of them because you're just so excited. And, you, and we've got people holding to all four here, so I'm going to be nice. Well, not, probably not all four, but... Number one, what are, what's he saying? Well, the church is protected from persecution during the Roman era. If that's what he's saying, that it's the locally, just during the Roman Empire, this is the only promise of all of the promises in all of these letters that is immediately fulfilled. It's the only one fulfilled in their time. All the rest are future. Option number two, the church is protected during the period of the Great Tribulation. Now, the problem is, there are believers who are killed during the Great Tribulation. Have you read about the Great Tribulation? If you do, and it's a lot of death and suffering, and so, I don't know. Option three, only the faithful are protected. And basically, this is 
I don't, really did not want to get into all of this, but some people believe that when Jesus comes, only the faithful will get raptured, caught up with him. So they get out and they get a pass. Probably not the best explanation, but it's there. And number four, the whole church is protected because all believers will be taken out of the world before the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5. I would probably argue for sure number four and probably number one is probably true too, a little bit. Maybe this is a double fulfillment. There's a little bit of a hint in their day, but ultimately the church doesn't have to suffer during the time of trial that will engulf the whole world before Christ comes to set up his kingdom. And we haven't gone through this whole timeline. I, I was not intending and not intending to do all of that. But the Bible often speaks of the time of trouble that will shake the earth and prepare it for the coming of Christ. And because they've been faithful, it seems to indicate that Jesus will keep his people from that time of trial. And what he's really trying to say is keep your perspective when you face opposition. Look at the big picture. That's what makes a great church. You got opposition, where you, re you remember you're going to be vindicated by Christ, and ultimately He is going to protect us. So keep your eyes on that and not on the opposition. So look for your opportunities. Get a proper perspective on opposition. Third thing He says is consider our obligation. What are we supposed to be doing? Are we actively looking for His return? Verse 11, consider your obligation. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. You cannot read this passage without concluding that these believers certainly thought Jesus was coming back soon. Any moment. He even said, I am coming soon. Do we believe that? The text calls us to do two things while we look and wait for that day. First, he calls us actually to wait for his return. I am coming soon. Several years ago, we got the honor, really, of hosting and getting to know Winnie and Floor. They serve in one of the stands. I don't know what I'm supposed to say security-wise, but you, if you were here five, six years ago, you know. They're one of our missionary couples. They're from the Philippines, and they're in one of the stands, which is like six months of absolute bitter cold, snow, ice, oh, without heat. Well, I mean, you know, not, they don't have a forced air heater like we would have. They are sacrificing with great joy to bring the gospel and discipleship to the people in that, in that country. They have a driving passion to reach those people and train them to grow in Christ. They're coming soon. They know he's coming soon, and that motivates everything. They can live and serve with great joy. To know them at all is to know that they understand the nearness of the coming of the Savior. And they are driven to serve at any open door. They've left family and friends. They've left the tropical climate of the Philippines to go to this mountainous country that's freezing. Do we live as if Jesus may come at any moment and allow him to work through us with the time being so short. Do we wait that way for his return? Second, we need, to be over, we need to overcome by faith. That's our obligation. We wait for him and we walk by faith. 
He says, hold, verse 11, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. You see, the challenge to overcome is one we all face every single day. When is a time in your life that you have been challenged and you feel like, you know, I just had to hold on and grip on life and my Savior by faith? Your mind probably goes to some big event, a, a surgery you faced, or you lost your job, or you're dealing with a broken marriage, something. And you'd be correct in those moments we all have to walk by faith. But I wonder, when we think like that, are we missing some of the greatest challenges to walk by faith that we face in life? I will get out of bed today. I will go to work, even though I hate my job. I do, by the way. No, I'm, I mean, I don't... <laughs> That did not come out right at all. <laughs> I do go to work, even in those rare moments when I hate my job. That's what I was trying to I shouldn't have gone there at all. I love, I, never mind. I had you too. I will be kind instead of rude today. I will forgive when it's so much easier just to get even. I will not lose my temper with my children or my wife today. See, those are the arenas in which the victorious are made. The overcomers are born. It's easy to read these letters and imagine that the victorious, the overcomers, are some special breed of, of super-Christian who live in some plane far above the rest of us that will never achieve. But we're all called to be victorious. We are all called to be overcomers every single day because we have a lot to overcome. Temptations, disagreeable people, unexpected setbacks, internal discouragement, friends who aren't very friendly, or frustrations on every hand, difficult situation, angry critics, chronic pain personal failures that we only know about. See, there are all kinds of reasons to give up. There are always reasons to quit. There's plenty of excuses if you want them. But, the text says, to those who persevere, who will not give up even when they feel like it, when everything within them says, walk away from this mess, to those who do not give up, Jesus gives two incredible promises. But you know there's a warning here, closest thing in this letter to a condemnation or to a threat. He says, so that no one will take your crown. We learned something important about crowns here and probably all of these crowns, all of these other rewards. Even assuming we're doing as well as this congregation was, at some point, our crowns are not guaranteed. Someone can take them from us. The condition for keeping a crown is what? Hold on to what you have. The race isn't over yet. You could be tempted and fall. You can no longer live a life pleasing to the Lord. It could be said, I think, from this text that whoever tempted you to do that has already begun the process of taking your crown. Who's going to take your crown? 
who or what is drawing you away from obedience? Who threatens your walk with God? Watch out. Consider our opportunity. Consider the opposition. Put it into some context. Consider your obligation. Fourth, consider our promises. Do we really live in and with hope? Jesus mentions two promises for those who are victorious, the overcomers. First, we will be safe and secure. Verse 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. See here are these pillars. Never again will they leave it. Jesus promises the people that they will be pillars in God's temple and they will never leave the presence of God. Remember the earthquakes. What do you want in an earthquake? You want some security, some stability. Philadelphia had been destroyed by a terrible earthquake. They'd run out for safety. But those who trust in Jesus Christ will be safe and they will be secure forever. It's a great thing to have a place that you can call home it ought to be the one place where we're known and loved and always welcomed. Jesus is saying, they might not like you so much in Philadelphia, but you've got a home with me in heaven. I'll make you a pillar in my temple so that you will always be close to me. Wow. Second, and I hate to say this, but we will be named and claimed Verse 12, I will write on them the name of my God and the, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. The power to name is the power of ownership. Those whom God has redeemed will be named and they will be claimed by him. You see, our old names won't matter anymore. Doctor, lawyer, professor, accountant, economist, most influential woman, famous athlete, teacher. Those won't matter anymore. But there are some other names that won't matter either. Felon, failure, abandoned, hated, humiliated, underappreciated, liar, adulterer. You see, in that great day, the blood of Jesus Christ will wash away all the tags by which we know each other. Our good names won't matter, and our bad names won't be remembered. We will all stand on the same ground, saved, redeemed, renewed, and renamed by the Savior. We will be given the name of the new Jerusalem because that's where we will spend eternity. The world, it takes Christians for granted. It sees no value in us, but God honors faithful servants. We may have no security down here. Earthly security is, is slim at best. Why do you think you lock your doors every night or as soon as you get into the house? You know, the stock market may collapse. 
even more than it already is. But one day we will have a new name. And if you want eternal security, it is found in Jesus Christ. And one day we will live in a city that cannot be shaken. Horatius Bonar wrote on this church at Philadelphia, and he came to this stirring conclusion. I'm going to read it. I was going to do my imitation of Horatius Bonar, but he died in the 1890s because, you know, you would think it was good, but he's Scottish, so I'm not going to do that. But listen to this. Not much has changed. He writes, small may be our strength in these last days. The tide of error and sin and worldliness may be running very strong. It may not be easy to confess Christ or to hold fast to his truth. But his grace is sufficient for us. And woe be to us if we give way to the errors of age, of our age, or conform to its vanities, or seek to please its multitudes, either under the fear of public opinion or the fear of not being reputed as men of progress. Faithfulness to Christ and to his truth is everything, especially in days when sin shall abound and the love of many shall wax cold. Is he alive today? I will return now to my opening question. What kind of a church does Jesus prefer? He prefers the church that will ask of itself the tough questions. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. To Ephesus, how's your love for Jesus? In Smyrna, is Jesus enough? Is he really enough for you? In Pergamum, what do you tolerate? What do you put up with? In Thyatira, do you compromise? In Sardis, is your reputation your idol? Because you think you're alive, but you're dead, and as long as people think you're alive, you're okay with that. No. The Savior's not okay with that. And so we add to this list in Philadelphia, are you really willing to suffer? Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to live your faith out loud? No matter what happens. Don't be afraid to suffer. Why? Because the reward is glorious. The honor is beyond all earthly honors. We need to know that. Contempt and hatred, they're just for a day or two. The dignity and the blessedness are forever and ever. Are you willing to suffer for him? Are you willing to be faithful? Will you wait for the Savior and look for the Savior and hold on to what you have? He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to Peninsula Community Church. Father in heaven, wow, these these letters, we wish they were written for another age, but they are written to us. And I pray 
that we would truly hear what the Spirit says to us. That we have great hope. That we would learn the perspective of, of your perspective of, of those who oppose us. And that we would live in such a way that it might be said of us that we've turned our world upside down for the right reasons. In the name of the Savior, I pray. Amen.